welcome to Kid You Not with me, Lauren. And me, Clementine. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Or go to our website, kidyounotpodcast.com, for all the podcast episodes. Now, we have an episode today that should interest some of you extremely, considering it was our most commented on blog post ever. That's true, and that is the question of ideology and children's literature, or ideology in children's literature. Are children's books as innocent as they seem? Definitely not, but even if they were, what would this innocence mean, um, ideologically speaking? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Why don't we start by defining ideology for stupid people like me? (laughs) Well, ideology, um, so from a literary criticism perspective, all texts, uh, especially fictional texts, are imbued with ideological content. Let's say you can't have a text that's uh, devoid of it. And what this ideological content can refer to is basically a system of values, of beliefs, of fears, of worldviews, etc., which all sort of underscore or closely linked to certain conceptions of power, certain conceptions of social political order. So what we say when we talk about ideology in text, we talk about these values, the, the fact that these values and beliefs will be distilled within language, um, so within, you know, even, even the words that are used to describe something, the words that are not used because they, um, they, are just, they just seem obvious, uh, all these assumptions that are embedded in the literary text will be talked about as ideological content. So, Clem, some people might say, but what about really simple children's literature, like picture books? How can something so simple and, you know, aimed at three-year-olds, how can that be so ideologically charged? Well, I think it's actually quite an interesting thing that people don't notice ideology, because obviously um, if ideology is not noticed, it is because it has become transparent, because we're bathed in it so much that to us the values that are described are are transparent. But just do this really simple exercise, take any book. So, for example, I don't know, the, the Jolly Postman or the Mr. Men book. Mr. Men, even, even you know, the simplest books ever. Clem, you might find some people to argue with there. <laughs> open a Mr. Men book, and you'll often find always the same type of... Um, sort of cultural characteristics of the book. You have very um, simply drawn houses that look like little country houses. Um, You have people who, I don't know, are going to wear, for example, a bowler hat, or they're going to wear a tie, or they're going to wear a bow tie. You're going to have women who are called Little Miss as opposed to Misses. And all these simple visual cues will tell you that uh, the, the sort of dominant ideology, the sort of hegemonic ideology of these books is very clearly sort of Western middle class ideology with very, very simple ideas, very, very simple ideas about, about, um, about housing, about ways of life, about relationships with others that we might not notice. And the reason why it seems so obvious when I'm seeing it, when I'm saying it, is because we are bathed in it. That, that's what we can call transparent ideology. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit more later. So you basically mean that really we already believe it because it's part of our society's beliefs. So we don't even notice that it's a system of beliefs that's being presented to us because that's what we believe. So why would it be something as concrete as that? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, there is no question that there is 
ideology in children's literature. There is ideology in every text. Every text is loaded with ideological content of a, cer- of a certain nature. And that's, you know, that's, if there's one important thing to remember, that is that no children's book is devoid of ideology. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because very often people, when they hear ideology, they think about, oh dear, it's like... Nazi. Uh, Nazi yeah. and communist ideology. But no, ideology means anything. It can mean, you know, the ideology of capitalism is what we are sort of living in now, late capitalism ideo- ideology. Well, I suppose it's something ideological. I've just read Jacqueline Wilson's new book, The Worst Thing About My Sister, and the premise behind it is that you should love your family and love your sister. And that's just accepted in our society because that's what you should do. But lots of people don't, and actually there's no reason why you should. That's a very, very good example, actually. Yes, absolutely. And children's books are permeated very often with this idea that families can be not perfect but they are your family and there is this very very strong attachment to your family that makes it almost impossible for the young um, read, child reader to be presented with stories of fam- of pure family hatred and that's probably par- partly why um, a lot of children's books use substitutes for parental figures to uh, allow the child to express hatred towards so, these figures. The thing with ideology is that now that we've defined it what we need to talk about is that there are, in fact, two different types of ideological content. Um, and that is because when we live in a society, any society, there are always going to be dominant ideologies that support dominant current practices of power and alternative, subversive, potentially, uh, ideologies with, which either try to upturn the dominant ideology or simply, you know, um, are deployed within this dominant ideology, sometimes subvert- subverting um, and transgressing the values or beliefs of this, but are quite content, you know, that just to, of just living there. So, for example, the worst thing about my sister would transmit a dominant ideology because it's something that society already believes and... Yeah we barely notice is there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially the fact, as you say, that it's unquestioned is quite an important aspect of um, how to tell that, a, that an ideology is dominant or is hegemonic is because very often um, we don't notice that it's there. We don't question it. We, don't, uh, we, we would question if it wasn't there. Uh, but the fact but when it's there, we don't, we don't notice it. So what happens there is that we can say that this ideology has become transparent. Um, that is to say that someone who you know evolves in a world where the values of, for example, loving your family, um, and even very often having a nuclear, uh, heterosexual, monogamous relationship, all of these can be said to be transparent assumptions about the world. So what would be an example of subversive ideology? So subversive ideologies obviously will vary enormously according to the time in history that you're in, according to the society that you're in. A subversive ideology in the US might seem very mainstream in France and vice versa. Uh, You know, these are completely um, actually subjective um, because obviously they depend so much on what is considered dominant. But what we can talk about, you know, when when talking about subversive ideology is actually the the level of uh, Activeness of the of the ideological content uh, displayed within a book. That is to say, we've talked about the transparent dominant ideology, which would be the characteristic of sort of passively ideological children's books that transmit uh, the author's unquestioned values and questions assumptions. So, by passive ideology, you mean something where it's evident that the author hasn't. They haven't consciously had an agenda when they've written the book. Passive ideology is where they have imbued the text with 
their beliefs or judgments and this is not question this is just part of their personality coming through in the text whereas active ideology can be thought of something where the author has tried for example in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is so heavily pervaded with Christian ideology in fact like the story is an allegory of the resurrection of Christ there's no question that is not passive ideology that is active the author wrote it with the intention of transmitting those ideas to children yeah, absolutely. So to a degree, uh, you'll have um, that distinction that can be made between um, an author, perhaps, let's take an example, maybe, um, I don't know, Enid Blyton, who is going to write um, stories that are absolutely infused with assumptions about sort of typical middle class, white families, the type of you know, type of things that the children find amusing, the type of language that the children would use, um, never forgetting, of course, that when we're talking about children's literature, we're talking about how the adult sees the child doing something and how what the child what the adult expect the child the child to be doing. Uh, so these are you know it's more complicated than that. Of course, it's um, there's the adult gaze on the child that needs to be taken into account. So I think it's fair to say that ideology in children's literature is so important because this is what builds the child's experiences of the world. This is what helps to build their belief systems, especially for children that are heavy readers. Yeah, it's well, children's literature is an acculturating medium, like children's films, like children's, um, now I'm assuming video games would play that role. That is to say that a, a children's book will invite the child to become incorporated, become an active member of a given society at a given time. And so because of that, the values that it transmits um, are values that, whether they correspond to dominant ideology or try to transgress it, will very deeply influence the child. And, and once again, we mustn't forget that there's always a very um, deep imbalance between the adult and the child, between the creator and the um, addressee of the children's book, and that therefore um, the adult with a longer experience of life, with a longer experience of ideological stances, is in a relative situation of, uh, of authority or of uh, superiority in transmitting these values uh, to the child. And it's fair to say that ideology is recognised as being a vitally important part of children's literature in that there are several books that maybe have come to be on banned lists mm -hmm. or censored by different organisations purely because of the ideas and beliefs that they transmit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting to see that very often, actually, you know, the dis decisions for banning books um, are based on complete misreadings. It could be argued that the more pervasive, embedded ideology is actually the more dangerous, Absolutely. as it were, because it's the things that you don't notice. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And um, I think this is a very important thing to say, which is that according to many children's literature critics and, you know, many literary critics in general... It is not books that promote certain ways of life, certain beliefs, certain values that are that are dangerous in the sense that are you know the most perhaps the most influential. It is the books that normalize certain ways of life, certain values, etc. That is to say that, for example, an, an actively ideological book, for example, a feminist children's book. So let's take the example of Babette Cole's Princess Smarty Pants. 
pants. Uh, this very, very popular picture book um, in which a princess refuses to get married and she um, you know, ends up at the end very happy with all her animals in her castle, etc. Um, this book tries to promote a counter-hegemonic reading um, of fairy tales, a counter-hegemonic conception of marriage, a conception of you know, being, being, uh, being a girl. It's, it tries to, provo- to promote it quite actively, so it, it's going for a, um, a very actively ideological content. Whereas a book, many books from the from the 1950s and, and, and 60s, for example, will will present um, perhaps even without mentioning it in the in the in the text, but maybe visually they'll present you know little girls staying inside and reading with their cat, whereas the boys are outside playing with their dogs. This has been very very widely documented, and these books do not promote girls staying inside and reading with the books. You know, they do not say this is a good thing for girls to do. They show it. And by showing it, they normalize it, they naturalize it, which is what leads to this transparency of ideology, which makes you as a reader and as a person in life, not real, you, you don't realize that these values are there because they are naturalized. They are seen as a natural part, a normal part of, of, of the life of someone in your, you know, sort of social class and uh, and country and uh, and and of your gender etc yeah so to take another feminist example we could say that you know disney princesses the color pink a lot of people don't realize that actually it's not deeply ingrained in girls brains that they prefer pink some people would argue that it is unfortunately (laughs) okay well disney princesses generally promote a very conservative stereotypical version of womanhood in a very old-fashioned, traditional way of being mm-hmm. female. And none of that is presented as radical. It's presented as, this is how it is. Girls love to be princesses. This is how it is is a very good phrase, actually. That's, that's, that's the definition of transparent hegemonic ideology. This is how it is. As soon as a book has ideological content which says this is how... Ha- as it should be, or this is as we don't want it to be, this becomes active ideology. Passive ideology is characterized by the this is how it is um, idea of the world. I think it's important to to note here that um, children's literature is generally overwhelmingly analyzed as being intrinsically conservative. That is to say that it's going to tend to replicate the conditions of its creation. Well, it's certainly true that British publishing tends to be I was going to ask you about that. (laughs) Conservative in values. And I think it's a really important thing to um, distinguish here. There is a difference between subject matter and ideology. Yes. Because there's a lot of books that people say, oh, these are so radical, I'm so liberal, allowing my children to read this. Um, But actually, the ideology behind... There might be about something really challenging or unusual to be discussed with child or teenage readers like Melvin Burgess's Junk for example is all about heroin addiction but the pervasive ideology is inherently very conservative very anti-drugs anti the lifestyle portrayed in there and leaves the reader in no doubt that that is bad so it doesn't doesn't question whether this lifestyle of drugs and prostitution is ever justified it's implicit and explicit throughout the book that it is wrong well and not only that but actually very often you will find that actively ideological books will need to lean on 
certain assumptions about the world that can be said to be passive ideology. So you're very right to say, that, so in the, in the case of drug, for example, that subject matter has nothing to do with ideology, that you can have an incredibly radical um, story, you know, on something that is apparently very, very mainstream, whereas you can have it actually very conservative stories on things, um, on topics that seem extremely radical. And on top of that, very often you'll find that a number of children's books that, for example, present um, homosexual parenting stories, um, so that have a political agenda, a social political agenda that's quite strong. Actually, even if the message is radical, almost all the time it's going to require a sort of unspoken assent for a number of values that are intrinsically dominant or hegemonic. So, for example, very often tales of um, um, homosexual couples in children's literature will rely on the paradigm of the uh, monogamous parents in a, in a nuclear family um, and of, as you said, you know, loving family, etc., etc. And actually, this dominant conception of the family will support, to a very large degree, the radical model that is proposed. That is to say, the message there is... We don't want to break, you know, all the traditions of our of our culture and society. What we're just saying is, can we please enlarge this model a little bit to incorporate um, gay parenting, for example? So you have very, especially for example in the U.S., very radical. It's a very radical position to have in the U.S., but it's going to rely on dominant, uh, dominant, um, unqu unquestioned assumptions about what a good family is. Well, yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because also, if you think of other controversial children's books, it's almost as if, then, the ideology within them is used to comfort the child or make the controversial event more acceptable and yes. understandable. Well, is it problematic? I don't know how problematic it is, because actually I would argue that it is impossible to have a truly radical book that just gets rid of all norms. <laughs> Norms are necessary because norms are, for the reader, whether child or adult reader, norms are what you anchor your reflection in. If you have a text that's just completely out there, that just decides to get rid of everything and install a completely new ide ideology with new values, new beliefs, new social order, everything, you're actually going to be alienated from it completely. And I think where actively ideological books are the best is when they manage to strike a balance between the alienation of a different alternative ideological system and the normativity of the, the, the system that it's trying to um, go against. And very often you'll find that in the best examples of, a, of transgressive, sort of radical children's literature, um, there is this balance there. There is this possibility for the child to be at the same time familiar with some aspects and estranged from others. And that will allow the child reader to construct his readerly position both for for some aspects and against some aspects. We were talking earlier about um, books that are banned because of their ideological content. Potentially, we haven't really talked about books that are that that gain awards or prizes. And it's very interesting, of course, because a society that has book awards is a society that chooses what it wants to reward in itself. So, a book award is an extremely strong ideological decision because it will sort of grant validate certain reinforcements of of the dominant ideology and I was wondering if we could you know look at recent books book awards for children and um, of children's books and have a look at how you know how they they, they normalize or naturalize these types of ideology uh, so recently um, Sean Tan won the um, 
Astrid Lindgren Award, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Children's Literature. What do you think of this decision to award um, such a you know international book award to a to a person like Sean Tan? For people who don't know him, Sean Tan is an Australian author and illustrator who's written a lot about uh, experiences of immigration, of experiences of um, you know integration into new communities. Uh, he's got a very sort of steampunk slash surrealistic take on narrative um, and uh, his books are extremely beautiful hauntingly beautiful actually and their ideology seems quite transgressive or radical in a way because very often he'll have books that are very strongly politically committed but I find it interesting that we we as in the sort of children's literature community reward this, this particular artist because the way I see it we see in his work something that we want to see in society well definitely because I think in uh, in the children's literature community we tend to be quite left wing in our values really don't we and yet a lot of more commercial popular children's fiction is on the right wing side so for us to reward or for, for us to give Sean Tan such a politically motivated author, an author that is politically motivated in a way that conforms with mm-hmm. our belief system in addition, his books are really really beautiful and really challenging for a child reader they are of a very high quality but as you say, if there had been a similar author who had political beliefs that did not tally as strongly as a, with our own would we have rewarded them? I don't think we would yeah, you're making an interesting distinction where here actually, which I hadn't really thought about, between the difference uh, between awards that are awarded by children's literature critics well, and, and, and professionals. Well, and if you compare that with who won the last Children's Laureate, which was a large part of the decision was from Waterstones, okay. a company that is, you know, has a strong financial motivation Incentive. in this. <laughs> The pa- you couldn't get more different, could you? Julia Donaldson, author of The Gruffalo, very mainstream, very successful, extremely successful, but you compare her with Sean Tan, mm. whose books are much more challenging to children. And you could say Sean Tan may be more appealing to adults than he is to children, because Julia Donaldson's work is in some ways more accessible, but... But empirical studies tend to show that actually children very often prefer more sophisticated piece of, oh, pieces no. of work. I completely <laughs> agree with that, but it's all about what the adult perception of what the child wants, and children, adults, sorry, very often underestimate what children are capable of or want to read. Yeah, and what you, what you point out here is quite interesting, which is that there is um, a, a, a difference between commercial fiction for children, which tends to be, as we said, rather conservative, um, perhaps in line with sort of a capitalist or consumerist ideology, and actually the certain pra- certain parenting practices, actually, but also general um, teacher agreement and, and in our community, children's literature critics, um, there is a sort of humanist ideology that's there, which is not necessarily actually a good thing, because, you know, it's a liberal, de- a liberal democratic humanist ideology, very uh, benign, very benevolent, um, that um, would contest the sort of uh, capitalist 
racist ideology, but at the same time, um, I'm not sure to what extent it is, is really it is a really transgressive uh, form of ideology. But you can see that very well, as you said, between um, between someone like Sean Tan, who's got an extremely humanistic view on life, very um, very benevolent with the integration of, of immigrants um, in new communities, and then someone like um, Julia Donaldson, who has no political message, but also whose uh, whose values are very, although they are quite transparent, very extremely geared towards traditional forms of uh, parenting and teaching and, and publishing, even. Okay, so I think um, that brings our episode to an end. Um, I hope that in this very, very short crash course in ideology yeah, and children's literature... It's been rather more dense than I've ever um, I hope that you would have um, that you have now um, you're now clearer about the fact that you know ideology does not mean propaganda. propaganda. Uh, even though in history uh, political systems, uh, extre- especially fascist and extremist ones, have um, have lent on children's literature to assert, confirm, and reconfirm their values and beliefs. Um, in fact, all political systems do this, questioningly, um, unquestioningly, or or consciously, depending on what they do but everything is ideologically ridden so an example of what Clem was saying about the government leaning on children's literature to promote its own values in order to encourage acceptance and support among the people would be pre-war stories of you know empire like biggles yeah it- Everything that can uh, recultivate in the minds of the children who are reading this, uh, certain conceptions of, of nationhood, certain conceptions of courage, certain conception of power, which are going to support the system in place. Um, and, you know, I, it, th- th- that's not to say that children do not develop counter-textual strategies in order not to understand this ideological message. We're not saying here that this is, um, that, you know, that all readers are the same and they all sort of, ingurgitate this um, this message but you know ideology is not solely propagandist and actually as we discussed I think it's more, most pervasive and persuasive uh, aspect lies in its transparency or invisibility and that seems like a good place to end great what are we doing next time Lauren well next time is a little bit of a change but fun change we are going to interview Samuel Gayton author of The Snow Merchant published by Anderson Press he is a debut author so we are go- and quite young so we're going to talk to him all about what it's been like to get published for the first time the writing process um, how hard it was to find an agent and what's happening now the book is out there mm-hmm, excellent so in the meantime go to our website kidyounotpodcast.com or subscribe to us, well, and subscribe to us yeah. on iTunes to get the next podcast episodes just on your iPod or iPhone without having anything to do with it. See, that's very easy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can write to us at kidyounotpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, if you have any comments on this episode, we'd love to hear them. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.